In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Those of us living in environmental justice communities are the canary in the coal mine. We feel the problems right now and have for some time. Environmental justice, for those of you who may not be familiar with the term, goes something like this. No community should be saddled with more environmental burdens and less environmental benefits than any other. Unfortunately, race and class are extremely reliable indicators as to where one might find the good stuff, like parks and trees, and where one might find the bad stuff, like power plants and waste facilities. As a black person in America, I am twice as likely as a white person to live in an area where air pollution poses the greatest risk to my health. I am five times more likely to live within walking distance of a power plant or a chemical facility, which I do. These land use decisions created the hostile conditions that lead to problems like obesity, diabetes, and asthma. Why would someone leave their home to go for a brisk walk in a toxic neighborhood? Betches Media presents. Donald Trump was a, a stain on our country. I am someone's daughter, too. That's what I'm well, me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. The Betches Suck Podcast. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Hello, and welcome back to the Betches Up podcast. This is Amanda, and today I am here with Samantha Miller. Samantha Miller is an urban wildlife content creator at the National Wildlife Federation. She works towards building sustainable communities that address environmental racism, both in the U.S. and abroad. She's also on the board of Black Girl Environmentalists, which works to create an affirming space for Black girls, women, and non-binary environmentalists. Thank you so much for joining us, Samantha. Hi, Amanda. It's really excited to, to be with you today. I think I would love to just open with you describing Black Girl Environmentalists. Yeah, um, Black Girl Environmentalists really came out of a need for Black voices to be centered in the climate and environmental movement. Um, And our founder, Wawa, uh, kind of recognized that, you know, through the traditional lens of environmentalism, it usually tends to neglect the voices and experiences of Black people and Black communities. And as women in these spaces as well, we show up a lot differently. Um, and, And therefore, it's really, really important for us to have a space together so that we can, you know, have networking opportunities and be able to reaffirm our identities and reaffirm that we have a rightful place in the movement and that our voices and our experiences can and will propel the movement towards a more just and like equitable future. So we're doing a lot of different workshops and, and networking events to, you know, let people know that the space in the environmental uh, world is, uh, is that it's a space that can, that their voices will be valued, right? Cause that hasn't been the case for, you know, many, many years. And, and so we're, we're going to build that community through that. And also, you know, collecting jobs and resources for Black girls and Black non-binary environmentalists. So that's really the purpose and the the mission, Um, and as well as uplifting the voices of Black environmentalists that are across the globe, too, because in the environmental space, you know, um, 
Western voices, even though within the context of the U.S. we are, have uh, many oppressed or marginalized identities. However, we do still take up a lot of space when it comes to the global environmental movement. So um, we're working to do a lot of different things, um, and it's and it's really new, and we're really excited to kick off uh, Black History Month with the Reclaiming Our Time campaign, um, partnering with lots of different organizations, and being able to to highlight the the work that's already been that's already been doing, um, going on. So, yeah. Awesome. It sounds like there are two big issues that you guys focus on that I'd love to talk to you about, which is that people of color, specifically black people have been left out of the mainstream environmental movement and its objectives, but also the discipline and the field. So I'd love to start with the latter. Um, are black people underrepresented in professions related to climate and environment? And if so, why is that? Yeah. Um, when it comes to big green, environmental organizations, they face a lot of challenges when it comes to really um, living up to these values that that they say are important to them. And, you know, that's an issue that stems from environmentalism traditionally being seen as, like, I work for the National Wildlife Federation, right, which is, you know, traditionally known as like a hook and bullet conservation, right? So fishing, hunting, anglers, that type of environmentalism. Um, but, you know, with the reckoning that's going on in the environmental movement, organizations are starting to realize that at a certain point, we can't necessarily put wildlife, right, and ecosystems above human beings. Um, and that's why human communities are so deeply interconnected into what it means to have sustainable, healthy, thriving communities. And, you know, for a, a long time, environmentalism has been seen as like save the polar bears. It's been seen as this or that, while at the same time, black and brown communities are literally choking from air pollution, from dealing with toxic sightings of, you know, industrial industries. And, and so that's where the problem lies, is that that connection really hasn't been fully, um, con and that connection has been made, right, in the history yeah. of the environmental and conservation movement. And then you and then you have issues historically where, you know, the founder of the Audubon Society, um, John James Audubon, was literally a slave owner. Right. So talk about environmentalism and placing certain values of white lives maybe above the lives of black wow. and brown environmentalists when it comes to that. And then you have, you know, um, John Muir, who was the founder of the Sierra Club, who's um, in an effort to preserve a lot of our nation's national parks and, you know, open spaces pushed out indigenous and black Americans, right? So there's always been this division there. Yeah. Um, and, and now we have, you know, organizations that still structure a lot of their power, like a lot of the boards and a lot of the, you know, uh, top leadership positions are still mainly made up of um, whites led people. And so that also kind of, uh, it, it, it fails to recognize that Black people have always had connections to the environment and that it's been through these racialized experiences historically and in the present day. So I would say that that's the, the main issue. We're still reckoning, yeah. reckoning with the past, right? A lot of uh, organizations are um, trying to fix these internal issues that are, that are coming up that make these workplaces not... Um, putting all the burdens on black staff to be able to teach them about these things that they should know about, you know, our collective history. So. Yeah. My next question for you was, was, you know, how environmental justice intersects with racial justice. And I didn't expect that that happens within the movement itself, but as you sort of mentioned, I think a lot of people, even with all the information we have still, when they think of the environment or climate change, think of like recycling and Greta Thunberg, 
but the roots and objectives of the environmental movement and who is impacted are really much more diverse than that. So this is, again, a pretty massive question, and you've already touched on it, but can you sort of share some examples of how environmental justice intersects with racial justice? Yeah, um, I can give one example. Uh, I can give many examples know. <laughs> from here in the U.S., and then I can give also an example of the work that I, I studied most extensively while I was in an undergrad at American University. Um, I'll share that first. Is cool. I did... Um, I did a project on water apartheid in South Africa. Um, So if you don't already know, uh, the system of apartheid and racial segregation ended in South Africa in 1994. Um, But prior to that, we have about, you know, two centuries of racial and economic segregation to the highest extent that we we really, really witnessed in um, human societies. And my work kind of... um, it kind of looked into how the the geography and the spatial layout of the city has still has impacts to this day of who gets access to sanitary um, sanitary items, meaning like toilets, sinks, water, and who gets access to clean water and fresh water on the daily. Um, and and so that's an example of you know colonial planning methods that were literally made to keep black people in a specific part of the cities on the outskirts of the city in the periphery right not centered in any of uh, in any systems of like a working functioning communities and they're still dealing with the reckonings to this day right um, and then you know with that there's a whole other conversation about uh, water privatization and how that further impacts, like how are we managing these water systems? How are we going to address the fact that the majority of black that you have um, in South Africa, you have 90% of like the white population having access to all sanitary needs, toilets, waters, and fresh water, while that's, that number is only around 40% for black South Africans. And if you know the, the, the population differences between that two, it becomes even more stark. Wow. So there's that. And then, you know, in the U.S., which um, can be said to be like the in the birth of the environmental justice movement. There's a lot of examples of um, toxic siting of you know um, of um, uh, oil refineries, plastics producing plants, all of these industries that emit an immense amount of pollution into the water and into the air. Um, and you know you have examples of Cancer Alley in Louisiana. You have you know examples of in East St. Louis, Illinois, which is 98% black, uh, and half of the population living in poverty. You know they are dealing with issues of pollution from chemical plants, refineries, waste incinerators, power plants. Um, you're dealing with uh, issues in 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 California where, you know, my majority Hispanic communities are dealing with higher rates of like pesticide exposure, right? Which leads to other respiratory and health impacts. Um, And there's a lot of different examples and it kind of shows up in a lot of different ways, but there's also the the fact that American cities are, um, I think a lot of people, it's important to also recognize that we didn't just the communities we live in today didn't just show up like this, mm-hmm. right? They were strategically planned, right? Yeah. And when we talk about um, redlining and racial discrimination in the U.S., that also really, really has impacted which communities even have access to tree canopy, which communities have access oh. to outdoor space. And these are all have connected issues because... Um, 
because when you have less trees in your community, you're going to be more susceptible to rise hotter temperatures, right? Which then impacts asthma rates, which then impacts air pollution, which then and and all of that all you know compounds together with the continued plight of racial injustice, with the injustice of of where where how can people. Um, basically I'm trying to say that like the, the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the water that we drink is completely racialized in yeah. many, many parts of this country. And a lot of times the, the polluting systems that are by communities of color were not put there by accident, right? No. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a, a debate in um, the environmental community. It's the chicken or the egg debate, like which mm-hmm. came first was right. it? Was it that we had these like lower property values, and so these these companies decided to come in here because it was the cheaper, or were these industrial sites already there, and therefore black communities moved into there, right? But it's a kind of complicated in in the sense, and when you start to recognize the fact that um, the disenfranchisement of like black and brown communities has been strategic, right? Yeah. And so when it comes to city planners, urban planning, which is you know one of my biggest passions where people decide to put these polluting industries is heavily racialized. You have, you know, millions and millions of Black Americans living, you know, next to oil refineries when you don't have those same population numbers for white Americans, Um, you know, and that's also considering that we're only 40 something percent of the population. Yeah. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. 
That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. You mentioned uh, things like asthma and just lung, lung diseases and cancers. I'm curious, how has the pandemic exposed any issues related to environmental justice? Yeah, um, I was actually doing some some reading this morning about how you have communities like the Bronx in New York, right? That pre-pandemic were dealing with some of the issues that I talked about before, higher rates of asthma, higher rates of air pollution, lower tree canopy, lower you know, urban green spaces. And these are also the same communities that are have the highest de- death rates when it comes to COVID-19. Um, and, and I would say that also it's, again, a compounding effect because in a lot of majority black and brown communities, they're also dealing with Uh, the issue of food deserts and the issue of food swamps, right? Um, And I can give an example of here in Washington, D.C., Ward 7 and 8, which are south of the Anacostia River, are majority Black. And um, there, and in Ward 7, there's about like 76,000 residents, and they have about two to three full-service grocery stores, meaning that that's all of where the fresh produce and all of these things, that's supposed to service an entire ward an entire population of people and and when you when you hear these numbers it's kind of like well where else are people getting the food to eat they're getting them at convenience stores they're getting at fast food restaurants and you'll see the difference because you go up to northwest which is one of the richest communities in dc you have five or six grocery stores all down wisconsin avenue and so i bring that up to say that you know black communities are lacking in quality fresh produce that's even available to us. You know, we're lacking the ability to be able to go outside and enjoy time in public parks and public spaces without fear of of, um, racial discrimination, um, without the the fear of all of these other things that kind of compound. And um, Mm -hmm. so our health has already been uh, deteriorated in a lot of different ways. And the COVID-19 pandemic just, you know, made it clear that the communities that we're living in are not equal in, in the distribution of environmental benefits or the distribution of environmental racism. It's, it's just not equal. Um, right. Wow. Turning a little bit to back to the field itself, um, how did you get involved in this work? How did you get interested in environmentalism? And second to that, were you able to find mentors when you were looking for them? Yeah, um, my I was born in Jamaica. That's where my family's from. And, you know, my grandfather still has his own farm and is still very, you know, connected to the land in that way. And I um, grew up in Vermont as well. And so I spent, you know, all of my summers really camping and hiking and and swimming. And, you know, and I went to Girl Scout camp, too. So I was always outdoors, always, always outdoors. Um, and so it was kind of a no brainer to me. It didn't really make sense why we would, you know, make deliberate choices that were against the, the health of our communities and also human beings. Um, and yeah, so I started at American University in 2016 and I majored in environmental studies and international relations. Um, and it, it was in the, it was actually here in DC that has been so impactful in me understanding how important it is to discuss environmental justice, right? Um, because it's not that I wasn't aware that, you know, your ability to um, enjoy nature, your ability to feel comfortable outside is heavily racialized. Like I, I could understand that, 
but also, you know, being in school and being one of the only black people in my classes most of the time and, you know, engaging a lot of scholarship that in traditional environmental studies really only focuses again on ecosystem services. It's going to focus on the science. It's going to focus on this. But like I mentioned before, there, there was a, a missing element of how how are human beings part of these ecosystems that we're talking about, right? And that's a really, really important thing for people to recognize. And so, you know, getting involved in different urban farms in, in DC and working kind of in the, the food desert and food justice work through, you know, different volunteer opportunities, um, all of that really just helped me shape my path forward, right? Meaning that um, Black and Brown communities have just have uh, different experiences with the environment. And that is, and that's overlooked. And that's usually why, you know, many of our classes are not going to have a lot of people that look like me because it's not a it's not seen as something where we our voices are going to be valued and that our experiences are also integral into finding the solutions to the problems that we face. Um, and so through school, I was able to find um, some really amazing mentors and my professors and also um, Mamie Parker, who was on the board of the Center of Environmental Policy. Um, and I have been working with her for about two years now, and it's been incredibly amazing to have an older Black woman who's able to, you know, because with a lot of mentors, it's it's hard to find that, like, really personal connection, totally. yeah. you know, and, and she definitely gave me that space to be able to figure out how to explore how to how to find my own voice within the movement and kind of feel empowered in that. Um, and I worked with her on an upcoming book about women in wildlife awesome. sciences. And it's kind of the book is celebrating, you know, women like Mamie Parker and Teresa Morris at, at the Department of Interior. Um, lots of different women, Black women that um, have worked in the conservation movement and have made significant improvements into policy practice and the science, but haven't necessarily been uh, treated as such. <laughs> and so yeah. the entire book is, it, there's different chapters, you know, kind of focusing on different identity groups. So I obviously was helping on the, the chapter of, um, of Black and African American women, and other chapters kind of focused on how, how these um, biases that are like built into the work that we do as environmentalists kind of impact, you know, LGBTQ women, how it impacts Indigenous women. And, and it's really important to to listen to these voices and to like help us understand how we can build a movement that actually is going to be able to help our communities. It's going to be able to help our children. It's going to help us people foster connections to the environment and know that they, they belong in those spaces and they belong in these conversations that are going on. Um, so yeah, I'm really, really grateful for the mentors that I've gained along the way. And, and currently you know, through the National Wildlife Federation, I've also found a lot of great mentors that are, you know, helping me kind of navigate how we can, how we can change our programs, how we talk about the work we do, who we engage in the work that we do, and how we engage with them. You know, that's the, that's where the real change starts, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I feel like that mentor anecdote is also just really telling because like people of all like races have a right to be like choosy with your mentor. Like, when there's just one or a couple of people, it's like, okay, but when there's plenty of people in the space, you actually can find somebody that's a great fit and that you can grow with. 
You mentioned there's such a focus when it comes to addressing climate change on the ecosystems themselves and, and the science itself, of course, but not having people of color represented properly can result in some pretty bad policy, I assume. What mm. does the lack of visibility and diversity in these fields mean for both what sorts of issues get prioritized and further, can a lack of understanding for certain experiences result in just straight up bad policy? Yeah, I mean, we see it happening a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> we see it happening yes. a lot. <laughs> um, and, and an example of that would be like, you know, national cap and trade policies, right? That where um, polluting industries can, there's a certain cap, but polluting industries can kind of buy credits that will allow them to emit in a certain amount of, of, of pollution of whatever it may be, uh, whether it be CO2, SO2, whatever it may be. Um, and it's, it's theorized that the, the money that's used from them buying the, the, the caps and the, the, uh, trade emissions right. to be able to do this, it's theorized that that money can go back into supporting environmental organizations. However, that money rarely actually goes back into, uh, supporting the black and brown communities that are still facing, they're the ones directly near these pollution sites most often, right? So if they're not getting the um, the actual reduction in pollution in their direct communities, and they're also not actually able to, to build towards a future with monetary support from that, we're completely, it's what yeah, a lot of people- point? Kind, yeah, what's Cap the and trade what, yeah. And, and it kind of leads to these sacrifice zones, right? Where we say, you are okay to, um, we're okay with you bearing this brunt of this pollution while other people can be able to profit from it in, in some sort of way. And, and that's really, when it comes to climate justice, um, and I wanted to also touch, touch upon, um, you brought up like Greta Thunberg, right? Yeah. Who, who, who's been able to galvanize a lot of support for, for environmentalism totally. in this work. But we can't also ignore that when it comes to activism in this space, it's usually white faces and white lenses that are um, focused on and centered, right? So the work that she's doing is really, really amazing, but there's been countless other, experience, other um, experiences and examples of Black environmentalists that are actually doing this work as well. But our, our backgrounds and our, our, our expertise isn't valued as environmentalism. And, and that's why the ideas of who we, who, the ideas of who we have, uh, the ideas of who we think is an environmentalist, the ideas of who we think is your traditional people who are outdoors enjoying these spaces, um, it's seen as white, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, as you're talking about it, it just seems like the work that people have to do that already live in communities where they have to fight pollution, it's like they have no choice but to be environmentalists. <laughs> But it's like for the people where it's a choice and they can like just volunteer their time, they are more celebrated, which I think brings us perfectly into, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about uh, the Reclaiming Our Time campaign. Yeah, and and that's why the Reclaiming Our Time campaign is really, really important because we're taking these activists, these people that are doing this work, whether it's like, uh, you know, organizations that they have started, whether it's their work within larger NGOs um, and pairing them with prominent like sustainability platforms like Sierra Club, Nature Conservancy, Future Earth, you know, uh, Kendall Jenner's platform, lots of people and being able to ampli amplify our, our, our voices and our, and our um, perspectives on the work that we're doing. Um, and also what I think is most, um, my favorite aspect of it is that we are 
literally um, saying that we have a rightful place to share our experiences and our work really does matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, I've had a lot of different conversations with um, Black women and other Black environmentalists who uh, were wary to even call themselves environmentalists because of the connotations of what that term means, right? And so we kind of have to to shift that to make people realize that like your environmentalism may look different, right? It may not be you marching in in this way, but it is you having conversations with your your family and your community about ways that they can do recycling, ways that they can shop more locally and ways that you can um, be an ethical consumer ways that you can also uplift the work of other Black environmentalists. So um, I'm really looking forward to how the movement is really going to shift to redefine what it means to be, what what it means to be Black in the environment, because um, we we have a responsibility to shape those narratives ourselves, but also what it just means to be an environmentalist. It's It's not just about again, saving the polar bears, it's about saving our communities and kind of building um, better connections with the environment that we call home. I think a lot of us have become kind of disconnected in a lot of ways. And there has to be a lot of, um, there's there's a lot of loose ends that have to be tied. We have to, you know, bring those connections back, you know, because that's something that's also been stolen from Black Americans and also Black people across the diaspora. But, um, you know, this ability to feel that we, we have a right to, to say how we, how our communities function. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And those connections and, and moments that, and contributions that have often been overlooked are things that you're going to be flagging all month long and just forever on Black Girl Environmentalists. I saw a post, a really cool post today that people don't talk about how Harriet Tubman was an environmentalist. Yeah. 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 And, and it's really important things like that because we've, <laughs> it's like two things have happened at so much. We've also contributed so much to the development of environmental scholarship, environmental practice, but it's not, again, characterized as environmentalism, right? right. It's usually people in their communities, you know, fighting against, you know, um, environmental racism, but they may not, they may not classify themselves as environmentalists because it's again, seen as something that's separate. It's something it, that, you know, white kids do to become vegan or this or that. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? So, um, yeah, there's a really important conversations to be had. And I, I really hope that, you know, um, young women, young girls, other non-binary folks who have, you know, been in classes where they're the only, um, you know, mm-hmm. black person or person of color and, you know, also having to read, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, your course texts are literally made by people who do not value your existence as a human being, right? Like, how are you going to feel like you have any sort of place in the movement? So mm-hmm. I think us coming together also just, um, it just shifts the narratives and it kind of puts the power back in our own hands to claim what we want to say about ourselves and not be dependent on uh, these big green organizations to move past their platitudes and actually develop that right because I think that we we have a lot of leadership to be doing in this space and eventually hopefully we'll be you know the ones you know in these leadership positions and able to actually change the the foundations of the work that we do um and I can share because I work at the National Wildlife Federation and and our programs work directly with cities and communities to help them uh, support community engagement by planting and creating native-friendly uh, 
uh, wildlife friendly habitat that's filled with native plants that can support the local populations of wildlife, of, of birds, of butterflies, like the monarch butterfly, right? Right, um, yeah. What I'm trying to do to this work is kind of shifting the narratives to, to make sure that when we talk about healthy, sustainable communities, we're also incorporating human health in that, right? And we're yeah. also incorporating um, the fact that if we, if our goal is to create uh, sustainable communities, that also means, you know, developing partnerships with people in your very own community who you don't involve in these conversations, right? Who don't, aren't brought to the table. Um, and it's also, you know, Black people have always been put in the position to do the heavy labor and do the lifting, right, of actually totally. like making these changes. And so there also has to be a shift of being like, okay, when are we going to be able to start, you know, developing these policies? When are we going to be in brought to the decision making table and to be able to actually have agency over, you know, the changes that we want to be seen in our communities? And I think that's that's something that's thankfully it's a shift that we're seeing and it's not necessarily easy. But um, I think I think a lot of people are, you know, um, they're gaining their voice back and they're feeling a lot more powerful and feeling like this is the work that I want to say. And I'm not going to stride away from talking about environmental justice because it is integral to what it means to be an environmentalist. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so excited to let our listeners know that if they want to learn more about this and get direct links and pages to where they can learn more about you and the work that you do and Black Girl Environmentalists, Samantha will be taking over our Instagram stories tomorrow, February 16th. It's a Tuesday put in a calendar invite. We're really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your time, Samantha. Thank you so much. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Thank you. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Up Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Our podcast director is Sean Kilby. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to SUPPod at Betches.com. Betches.